Okay. So let's take a po- let's just drop in for a second. Very stimulating conversation, but Okay. So we've had some open-ended conversations. I hope that's all right with you all. Maybe that's a good thing. I'll say one last thing about a, a technique uh, in terms of working with like difficult situations that may or may not help, but one of them is with the from Shanti Deva, who's definitely not, you know, let's just say uh, there's no single kind of solution to these types of things. But one thing that is interesting is um, if someone hits you with a stick, you don't grab the stick and say, you bastard, and throw it on the ground and like stamp on it. Right? You go after the person. But the person is like a stick in the hand of their own kleshas. So if you want to be angry at something, be angry at their kleshas. Be angry at all the kleshas, actually. And Shanti Deva says, Galantu antrani me kamam shiraha patatu namame natu avanantinyame sarvada klesha veiranam Let them rip out my guts. Let them, let my head be cut off. But I will never bow to my enemies, the kleshas. Including my own, of course, but not just my own. Right? So that's something, that's another way of thinking about this, is people are, you know, if they're, if they're doing things out of hatred and anger, first of all, they're always doing it out of stupidity, because that's not what's going to make them happy. But if they're doing it out of hatred and anger, they need to be restrained, but the thing to be angry at, which maybe even it would be appropriate, to use that energy, is to be angry at the hatred and the anger. Not the, not the person. No, you don't need compassion for hatred and anger. You, need, you don't need compassion for the kleshas. For our own? No. You need compassion for the person. You need compassion for the person afflicted by the kleshas. Yeah. The kleshas are not your friends. I know there is a thing like you make friends with your anger or whatever, but that's not really... It's not make friends with your anger. In this context, it's see what your anger actually is. Right? So in that kind of a context, when you're trying to like work with your anger, what is your anger actually? The mind. Right? That's not saying I'm going to try to figure out, like, why am I angry, you know. So there's, there's so this is just to be clear, like, there's a kind of thing where you kind of are saying, oh, what's the history here? Why am I angry? Who am I angry at? What is this going on? And all of that. That's important. Like, you might call that practical wisdom. You're trying to figure out, like, what's going on? What's the context? What can I do? But if you're doing that while you're angry, it's not going to work very well. So one way to work through the anger is not to like be friends with your anger. That's not really, you know, I mean, I realize that's like in modern Buddhism, you find people who say that. It's not really, I don't know of any Buddhist text that says that, actually. 
That's not a traditional approach. Maybe that's not good. Maybe that's what we need. But what you can instead is, you like, you don't want to be averse to your anger because then you can't see what it really is. So if you have aversion to your negative mental states, you're in trouble because it's just you're not going to be able to work with them. Uh, and um, one thing. But then secondly, also, you don't want to say, oh, I just, you know, I'm fine with having dysfunctional, destructive mental states. No, that's not, no, sorry. We need to transform them. And how do we transform them is see what the nature of what's actually going on. So in the moment, to, to just drop in and see the anger for what it is, right? The mind itself can help one then to see more clearly. Because what does anger do? It exaggerates the negative qualities of its object. Like, that's the worst person in the world. So that, when you're there, you're not going to be effective at dealing with whatever situation it is. Because you're not seeing clearly. You're like, you know. So see the klesha. See the klesha clearly, but also see it for what it really is. Look at it and, you know, that... No one's... Oh, no, you don't want to hate it. I didn't say hate it. No, no, no. You have to be... Yeah. Well, no, if, if, if you're going to get... Ang- if, you, if you're experiencing anger, right, this is not about your own kleshas, but in the sense that, you know, the kleshas are your enemies. You don't need to be angry at your enemy. You're just not going to surrender to them. Right? Like Hastapada Ari, Rahitas, Trishna, Dvesha Ari, Shatravaha, Noshura, Nachate, Pradnyaha, Katamdasi, Kratos, Mitehi. Another verse from Shanti Deva means they don't have hands, they don't have feet, they're not smart, and they're not courageous. How have the Kleshas, my enemies, made me their slave? That's Shanti Deva. Right? In that same chapter, actually. Which is... Yeah, conditioning, karma, ignorance, right? Which is a klesha. Right? So, yeah, you're not... You're not but if you're going to be angry, don't be, you know... It, 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 in other words, especially with somebody else, if, you, if you're going to be... If anger is coming up, direct it to their kleshas, not to the person as a method. With your own kleshas, the key here is to recognize them, but if you're averse to them, you're angry at them, they can be your enemies, but you know, get to know your enemy. You don't want to be averse to them, because if you have aversion, you're not going to be able to do anything with it. You're going to just run away from it. You won't be able to see it clearly. You're exaggerating its qualities. Anger is, you know, so terrible. Why do I have it? Yes, yes. And then to, you know, acknowledge what's happening, but then also to see, so then in the moment, like you're having an intense klesha, in the moment, what is that? Just like you look directly at the distracting thought, look directly at the klesha. 
What is it? And that's what it is, is the mind itself. So that creates a space, a possibility for change. Okay. Well, ah, we might go a little beyond 11 because I really want to go through some very important things today. And we've done a lot of other talking, which is okay. Not that I'm especially good at it, but... So we're going to introduce this. We're going to talk a little bit about a certain kind of cognitive model, a model of how the mind works that's coming out of uh, what's called Pramana discourse, which is a pan-Indian, pan-Sanskritic cosmopolis discourse that many different schools, I know, many different schools who wrote in Sanskrit, remember it's not just India, India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Indonesia, Nepal, I mean, like Sanskrit was all over the place. So, uh, Central Asia. So, uh, these people weren't writing in Latin, they were writing in Sanskrit. And what they were writing about, some of them were like, how do you know things reliably? So there's a whole model uh, of cognition that emerges out of that that's very important for the non-dual traditions. And this philosopher, depicted here in a Tibetan depiction, and doing debate is what his, that gesture is, is Dharmakirti, is the most important philosopher for this. And... Uh, it's kind of, a lot of it is coming out of Sanskrit grammar. We're not going to focus on that part of it, but if you're interested in that, you can read about it in my book about Dharmakirti, which uh, was published in 2004, quite a long time ago. Okay, so, one of the uh, goals of this way of trying to account for how knowledge works, how knowing works, how perception works, and we're going to focus on perception, we'll talk a little bit about conceptuality, in relation to perception, is one of the motivations here is to like give an account which takes a, a capital S self, that should really say uh, capital S self, that takes that kind of self out of the picture as the agent of knowing, the one who's doing the knowing. Okay, So we have an object known, an agent who's doing the knowing, a means of doing the knowing, and then the action of knowing itself. Okay? And what's going to be taken out of there is that agent. We don't need an agent. Okay? Uh, so all of basically what's going to happen is, in a way, the different aspects like object, subject, apparent agent but not actual agent, object, subject, and activity of knowing, they're all going to actually get collapsed together. So here's a non-Buddhist model of this process. Okay? You have a, that's the Atman. It's not nice to have a happy Atman. So your Atman like kind of observes the mind. This is one version of a non-Buddhist model. And that Atman is the agent. Never mind that it's hard for an unchanging thing to be an agent. Don't worry about it for now, right? And, and this is definitely simplified, but that's okay. And this is the object, some visual thing. And this is the instrument, the means of knowing, the eye faculty, and there's an interaction, and there's a perceptual knowledge event. And the sort of basically the agent is kind of standing outside, looking in, in a way, into the mind. And that is how this process works. So they're all separate. All of these things are like separate events. Right? This is also known as the resultant act of knowing. It's a technical thing you don't need to worry about. Here's the Buddhist model of sense perception. Okay? There's an interaction between... Uh, your sense faculty and some kind of sensory stimulus, like this visual one. 
And then what happens is that creates a phenomenal form of the object in the mind. And at the same time, there's a phenomenal form of their sense of subjectivity in the mind. Okay? Everyone understand that? At the same time, there's an object form, there's this a for, a phenomenal form, a representation of a sense of subjectivity and a sense of object simultaneously. And what, and what are they? You know, which of these really is the object? Well, actually, in a way, the phenomenal object is the representation in the mind. That's what you're actually experiencing. This is the cause. Okay? So we can call this the instrument. Don't worry about that for now. They're not, it's, but is this the agent of knowing? No. Because the agent of knowing would have to exist before the action. So let me show you another. The, the main thing here to know, a couple of main things. One of them is, these forms are nothing other than the mind itself. They're just the mind appearing or consciousness appearing in a certain way. But they're not separate entities. right? It's just consciousness appearing in a certain way. So if we look at this, let's take this in a particular kind of context where you see something and you say, oh, that's blue. Okay? So like at time one, there's the interaction. And at time two, you get this representation. Okay? So this, how long does this last? And this, an instant. Everything only lasts an instant on this model. So how this sense of subjectivity did not exist before. It only arises simultaneously with the representation of the object. Okay? So that means it can't be doing anything to that object. It can't be the knower of that object. Because in order to be doing something, there has to be an agent that then acts. But this agent is not acting. It's just a structural feature. Okay, now, so let me explain. So you have, we'll just stop there and do this for a second. So you have a sense of, if you look at that blue dot, for example, you have a sense of color, right? You see color. All right, let's just be like simple high school physics. Where's the color? Okay, people, yeah, in you, so where's your mind here or here, and then whatever, like, a simple version of this is uh, like, uh, you know, simple kind of quasi-scientific version of this is there's photons reflecting at a certain frequency. They strike the retina. This is processed like through the thalamus and so on. And eventually goes in the, uh, uh, in the visual cortex in the back of the head. And then it, it sort of moves forward in the ventral stream. And then at a certain point, somehow magically, we don't know how that works, uh, you like see blue. But the photons aren't blue. Blue is the way our visual system represents that frequency of light. And if we were different kinds of creatures, we would have different rep phenomenal representation. Like dogs don't see that kind of color in the way we do. And other animals see more colors than we do or different frequencies. Some animals see ultraviolet. Right? So we... like Actually, dogs also. So... Uh, we don't, at least to some degree, supposedly, according to Ed Young, anyway. Uh, so, uh, you know, 
what we're seeing, right, what you're seeing right now, in terms of the color, right, is not out there. Everyone got that? All of your visual perception is not out there. Everyone good with that? Totally clear. So where am I? Right, the, this image, this visual thing that's going on is in your brain or your mind. Better say your mind. So like, you know. <laughs> no, sorry. Hey. I'm in your mind. Okay. Uh, so, uh, right? So that's, the first. so that's actually kind of quite a thing in a way. To really, and we'll do a little practice about that, to really say this is in the Western context called phenomenological reduction. Like, you're not seeing out there. The yeah, it is like the matrix. So why does it look like it's out there? How is that working? No. It is dualistic, but how? Why? What's what's accounting for the dualism? Yes. So what's accounting for the dualism is this structure. So your sense of subjectivity gives the sense like there's in here, out there. Even though all of this is actually in, in consciousness, right? You're, what, you're, what you're directly seeing right now is what? Inside. Your mind. Well, it's not inside. We're going to get more to that later, but like... It's inside outside. Like that's where that distinction starts to really become problematic. So would you say that the conventional understanding utilizes nature? But it's but on this account, the conventional understanding is a bad convention. This can be understood also as conventional, not ultimate. We'll come later talk about why that's the case. But this is so this is just saying like it's when we think so there's a structure that accounts for in vision depth. A sense of there's a seer, a, a one, there's a sense of there's somebody seeing or a seer and then the object seen. And they're like, one's over there and one's in here. All of it is actually just in consciousness. Correct? This sense of subjectivity is, only, is going like this and it only exists when there's the object, under certain unusual circumstances, like, for example, when you're starting to fall asleep, you could still be conscious, or when we do certain kinds of practices, and maybe when you take certain substances, you can, which I don't recommend, but, uh, you know, you can take those, that can go away. There's no, if the object goes away, there's no subject. You get, you get it? There's, yes, correct. There is, but in ordinary awareness, ordinary waking awareness, that's happening all the time. Yeah, but, yeah, but that sort of moment in between is that sort of like yes. experimental, proverbial. Yes. Yeah, exactly. There could, so, and even maybe just in ordinary experience, between experiences, could that be possible? Maybe. 
But the idea here is that the ordinary mind is constantly, you know, objectifying. Why? Kind of. To our survival. We want the good stuff. We don't want the bad stuff. It's evolutionarily adaptive for a samsadic survivor. It is maladaptive for a bodhisattva. Right? So... You, so, so what that means is the sense of seeing, of being a, of the seer is structurally required to have this depth, right? All of it is in consciousness, okay, at the same time, right? We're all clear about that. And just to emphasize, we understand, so that means that that sense of the seer, right, this is not doing the action of seeing. It's another representation in consciousness that's necessary because, like, the organism needs to locate itself in time and space relative to its objects of perception. If it can't do that, like, where's the tiger? So a very minimal version of this is just keeping track of your spatio-temporal location relative to sensory objects. It can help with that in the sense that it, that starts to let us see that seeing is not just a straightforward, like, oh, you know, we see tables. But it's not, this is actually another step. What this step is doing is, when we, once we do that phenomenon, we don't need to do a phenomenological reduction to recognize that, in some sense, we're putting the table together. Like, can you see a whole table? You can yeah. You can't see a whole table. Nobody can see a whole table. So when what we actually see, and that's a good next step here, we're going to come back to this issue in a minute. What we actually see is a part of the table. And then we, we infer, or even we just conceptualize without inference. We just then conceptualize, like we know what tables are supposed to look like, and we engage in a conceptual act that says that's a table. And this happens so fast, you know, at the next time three, as it were, that we think this is reality. We, like, are almost oblivious to this. It's very, without, and that's where meditation training can get you to the, down to that level, right? So that's one thing, it's like noticing the conceptualization, that's where the de- deconstruction of the table can be helpful. But this is also then just actually see, actually experiencing what you're seeing as not out there. It's a cause of something that we presume is out there. We'll come back to that later. So there's causes. It's not just like I'm making it up. There's causes. And those causes exhibit regularity. Right? Like I don't spontaneously have blue lotuses growing out of my eyebrows, you know, and big horns. Like, you know, do I? No. Okay. So, right? Not at the moment. Yes. So uh, we're not just making it up. There's causes that exhibit regularity, but what we're seeing is not the causes. 
We're seeing the effects of those causes. So you said ordinary consciousness is constantly objectifying, but also subjectifying. Exactly. At the same time, it's doing both. Exactly. Because to objectify, you have to subjectify. If you don't, you don't know where it is. How would you be able to, like, it's over there. Like, where? What do you mean, there? There is there because it's not here. Yeah? Maybe. As soon as he turned to the camera and went like this, he was out. Maybe. I don't know if that flow states. I don't. You know. I know a little bit about flow states, but uh, uh, I'm not convinced that flow states are non-dual. I know. I think they're non-conceptual, maybe, but but not non-dual. I think they're still structured. They have to be. They, Uh, not even sure, I'm not even, not even totally sure about that. So I would be cautious. I think flow states are basically radically overstated, to be frank. It's, you know, but who am I, party pooper? (laughs) So, uh, uh, can I, I need to go, we need, we have a lot to do. We have a lot to do, yes, okay? Okay. I understand. That's fine. Okay. All right. Well, thanks very much for joining us for part of it. Good. That's good. I know. And then we get in the theory and it's like, uh, no, no worries. Take your time leaving. It's fine. I'm going to keep going, though, if you don't mind. All right. Uh, so, uh, so we conceptualize, right? And also, we're, this is not, like a, this is not a, a mirror image of reality. It's not a picture. That's why this is represented a different way. Like we are, the visual system is, uh, uh, even though this is a non-conceptual uh, cognition, it's not just a picture. Like the kind of visual system we have, uh, the other conditions, are gunk, you know, whatever gunk we have going on, like all of our conditioning and so on, that's going to affect even the non-conceptual image. Okay? It's going to affect even the non-conceptual image. So that, and, and of course, we're just, if we're not um, looking at things, we're just doing mental selfing. Right? Which is... I found this on the web. Oh, gee, thanks. <laughs> which, is, uh, uh, which is like, that's perfect, isn't it? Which is... Uh, yeah, mental selfing. Which is, uh, you know, like default mode network. It can be overstated, but basically it certainly, it seems to be involved in uh, that kind of like constantly, like if we don't have anything to do, we're just doing some selfing. You know, oh, there's this and that. Mental time travel, in other words, right? Okay? So we're just constantly doing that. So, and we have all that gunk and the selfing going on, but this is not the same as this. They're causally related, this moment of consciousness is, uh, is a cause of this moment of consciousness. But this is not the same. It only lasts a moment, 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 right? Okay? So, 
we said that's non-conceptual. This is conceptual. What's happening here is that this is producing uh, a uh, through a process called the exclusion through exclusion a process of concept formation. Uh, it, we conceptualize our visual content and we see a table and we think that what we're seeing is a table. We're not seeing a table. We're seeing parts of a table, and then we and then we conceptualize it as a table, even though. This is a concept. It can still be, if it's based upon, if this is well-formed, in other words, it, its causal characteristics, right, are picking up some causal characteristics of this. So when this thing is used to make a concept, even though the concept is distorted in ways we'll talk about momentarily, it can still be useful as long as we're getting the right kinds of causal, picking up the right kinds of causal features of that stimulus, Okay, so that means that what makes this reliable is our conceptualization that comes out of it. Because if we don't conceptualize, we can't act as ordinary beings. Without conceptualizing things, we can't do anything. And in that case, and in that case, that's not not a reliable cognition. If I conceptualize that as an elephant, I'm not going to get what I want, right? That might be true. So here's something. So what's going on here? Let me just uh, check something here. And uh, Yes, I, I, I don't want to spend too much time on this, so well, maybe I'll just run, run through a bit of it. Okay. Okay, fine. So first of all, concepts are not language. They are something that has the structure of language, but non-beings uh, that don't have the capacity to use language use concepts. And, and my favorite example, example is pigeons. So there's this famous work uh, that was done in the, in the 60s and 70s, uh, most of it by Hernstein at Harvard, about concept use in pigeons. And they taught pigeons to recognize Charlie Brown. You know, like if they got it right, they pecked a lever and they would get a pellet, you know. So, and they could get to the point where they could recognize just by his head or like he's upside down or just part of him, you know. So they got really good at recognizing Charlie Brown. There's no evolutionary reason for pigeons to recognize Charlie Brown. He's not food and he's not, you know, a predator, right? So uh, they could learn the concept of Charlie Brown. What does that mean for that a concept is? A concept is like, it's really just what's repeatable, Right? It's something that has a predicate subject object structure, right? And it involves repeatability. So Charlie so the pigeon says, "Oh, that's Charlie Brown." And that's Charlie Brown again. Once they learn what Charlie how the concept of Charlie Brown, which is they're constructing the concept of Charlie Brown, then like oh, that's Charlie Brown again, 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 again. And that's what a concept is. So, like, famous, one famous example is the ability of the baby to find the breast again is also an example of a concept. Babies can't use language, but they're conceptual. Okay? 
So it's that repeatability of cognition. So the, the Buddhists are rejecting, and we talked about this before, they're rejecting this kind of intuitive classical account that even though all the tables are different, there's nothing exactly the same about any of these tables. Nevertheless, why do we call them tables? Because they have some kind of tableness, right? They reject that account. And instead, that's an essentialist account. And instead, what they, they say, we construct this category through a process of exclusion. They're not all the same, but other things are different. Other things don't do what we want them to do, basically. Okay? So I'm not going to really... This, the, I'm gonna, we, we kind of went through this, right? So I'm not going to do this again. And so basically, this, the classical account says this is real, and the Buddhist account says we make it up. And it, yes, yes. And so the key thing about this is that the idea here is that all of these are the same in one way, which is they all have this. And, and Dharmakirti's position, and the position of all Buddhists following Dharmakirti and some before, is that all of these are actually completely unique. There is nothing the same about any of them at all. Not a single quality is the same. Okay? That's a, another very important point. Which also means then that every moment of experience is completely new. But because we're conceptualizing, it's like, oh yeah, I saw that before. Reality is, every moment of experience is fresh. It's completely new. Okay? So I'm going to run through that, so we don't need this. All things are actually different, but we ignore some of their difference in order to construe them as the same because they all appear to perform the desired functions other things cannot perform. So in our experience, tables, guttas, or water jugs do things that you know this object and this thing don't do. So by in contrast to these, we can make this into a set. Okay, and that's what our mind does. But it's not finding a property that is identical because all the perceptual information is different. Yeah, but still there has to be enough about those things that is different from those other four things. Well, they're all... So here's the thing. They're all different, for, they're all different from each other. Yes. But they're different from these in ways that are more relevant. Okay. Like, actually, they're all the same. How are they all the same? Anyone? No, no. This, these, all of these things are the same. They're in the mind. They're representations. They're visual objects. They're over there. You know, you can make any... Now, most of those categories you wouldn't make because, like, who cares about those categories? Right? But you care about the category of holding water or being usable as a table and so on because you want to do stuff. And these things accomplish that. Right? You know, we could put in... But they're really different shapes. Right? They're, they're made out of different materials. So they're obviously very different. These things are also different. We have to look more carefully. But the actual visual information we get from these different tables is not identical. Anything we can perceive is different. The only way we can make something the same is by imagining it. 
the universal tableness. You can't see tableness because anything you see is different. Right? We agree with that? So that means the only way this exists is as an abstraction, meaning it's not perceptual. So what's the evidence for its existence? Our feeling like, oh, those categories have to be out in the world. They can't be something we're making up. Why not? Yeah, well, but it could be useful, and we're making it up. So we could have a, we could have a cognitive system that is able to make up categories that work most of the time, not always, right? And like, okay, that's this, that's that, and we get through the world that way. But our feeling is that the category is out there. And since we have that feeling so strongly, we, just, we think, oh, well, nothing we see or feel or touch or taste is the same, so there must be something that we can't see, feel, hear, or touch or taste that is out there. So birds might see all the same thing and categorize it totally differently. Yes, to right, exactly. And we, in different contexts, categorize things in different ways. So there's nothing we see that is the same, but we have a strong intuition that the sameness is out there. And because we have that strong intuition, we feel like it's got to be out there. Even though we have no evidence for it. Other than that we can make our way successfully in the world. We actually have lots of counter-evidence. Like things that you know seem to be in one category and then suddenly they're in another category. And which is the real category? Like, is that a table or is it furniture? And right, but if it's like real thing in the world, then we got to make a decision. How do we deal with overlapping categories? Like, you know, is it a table, furniture, visual object, a thing on top of a floor, or what? And like, you know, which of those is the real category? Okay, but that's this intuition. So that accounts for this. This so it's successful because it's a, because it tracks back causally. If it's a well formed concept, it works. Okay? Even though there isn't anything the same, we can construct the sameness and work with it. But there actually are two ways in which these concepts are always distorted or erroneous. The first is that we think there's oneness. And like this is a well-known feature of human cognition. It's so well-known that it, there's a term that I'm now forgetting. Maybe somebody here knows it. For fake pattern recognition. Like, we see oneness, we see patterns, we see oneness, 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 and then we see oneness where there isn't oneness. This is actually a symptom of certain forms of psychosis. Right? It's like, oh, look, the shape of that, and then the color in there, and it's all that so means that, you know, right? Conspiracy theories. You see, like, a pattern. There was this, and then there's that. And you see the way he moved his hand? And then it was over here. And it's like, yeah. Someday I'm going to make a conspiracy theory, but, you know, I haven't figured out the right one yet. Hopefully harmless. Uh, so, uh, right? So that's fake oneness. All oneness is actually fake. Because everything's different. But 
some things, some forms of oneness are work because they, there's a causal process. This is picking up causal features of the stimulus successfully. Okay? But actually, all oneness is wrong. And the second thing that is probably more prominent in humans maybe than in other creatures. So by the way, let's take a pause and say, why would it be useful to have such a strong intuition that the oneness we see, the patterns we see, are real things in the world and not constructed by our cognitive system? Yeah, yeah, it's like the, the, the philosopher mouse, you know, saying, well, that sounds like the sound of a tiger, but actually, you know, uh, that's just a category that I'm... Const- well, also, we can cooperate, we can communicate with other people, we can enjoy things. Yes, around that, but we could presumably do that, and presumably people will reach a certain level of realization, do that without thinking that what they're talking about is, like, real. Yes, exactly. That's right. Exactly. So not only do we not want to have extra processing where we have to say, uh, you know, it's not really a tiger, it's just a sound that I'm constructing as the same as a previous sound, and therefore maybe I should run away by the time that time you're dead. That's one thing. And then the second thing is for constantly seeing patterns everywhere, like, is that a threat? Is that a threat? Is that, oh, is that food? Maybe that's food, right? And then, you know, so we're just constantly doing that. So we see oneness all the time. We constantly are doing that, which means accounts for, for example, when we have certain types of non-dual experiences, people often report them as oneness because their cognitive system goes, oh, there is no differences, so there must be one, which is, from the Buddhist standpoint, a mistake. But you see that a lot. It's a big problem in psychedelics research, actually. Okay, so that's one error. The other error uh, is that we think the thought is the thing, which we've already seen. Maybe more prominent in humans because of our remarkable capacity for mental time travel. Robert Sapolsky from Stanford some years ago wrote a book called Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. And the basic reason is because they can't time travel the way we do. To some extent they can, but not like we do, where it's, we can really relive the past and really anticipate the future, and therefore it really affects our bodies. It also is a good thing, because we can like, plan in ways that make, you know, we can make buildings together, we can imagine stories that you know, help us to work together, and so on and so forth. Uh, we can think there are things like nations and so on, but we don't... Uh, uh, but at the same time, all that feels really real to us, and therefore, when we think about difficult things, we get stress responses, and we give ourselves, you know, stress-related diseases. So those are the two basic kinds of distortion. And a thing to remember is: Could you ever experience two things as actually the same? Yeah. Could you ever have a perceptual experience? a non-conceptual, perceptual experience of two things that are actually the same? No. Which means you can't learn, like you could learn, for example, uh, gravity. Like, oh, you know, if I look over that, it drops. Oh, 
You know, and you see kids learning stuff like that as they're growing up. Like, oh, if I do this and that, and very young you know, infants, they sort of discover, oh, if I hit that, it moves, you know. Uh, you can't learn oneness. So it has to be built into your system. The habit of creating things as one, of seeing patterns, is innate. Because you could never learn it. Okay? You can learn language. You have to have the capacity for language. You have to have the capacity to learn about sensory motor action. But you can learn particular things, like different languages, because they're not built in. But this has to be built in, because you could never have an experience from which you would learn that things are the same, because they're not. Second thing is, is it ever the case that the thought of a thing is the thing that caused it? No. Thought of an apple has never been and never can be an apple. So that sense of like, oh, my mental contents is a real thing. That's the thing. That also has to be learned. Excuse me, it has to be acquired. It can't be acquired. It has to be innate. It can't be learned. You get it? So these are... Okay, so if I think of an apple, we did the strawberry thing, and uh, it made my mouth water. There's never been a time when the thought of a strawberry was an actual strawberry. So you, as a young infant, cannot learn, oh, just like, oh, if I drop this, if I hit this, it moves. If I think this thought, I get a real strawberry. That can never happen, because the thought is never a real strawberry. So the tendency to think that your thoughts are real things in the world can't be learned from experience. It has to be built into your system. Every sensory experience is different. So the tendency to put experiences together into the same class, like that's a table, that's a table, that also can't be learned from experience because you can never have two experiences that are exactly the same. So that means that you have to, it has to be built in. For a survival. Yeah, it's for a survival. But it's also for planning. It's especially for learning from the past and planning for the future. Right? That's the main thing. The thought part, so, so like both of those contribute to mental time travel. Right? And in the moment, they're really useful for survival too because if I don't think that the sound I just heard is the same as the sound I heard when my friend got eaten, I'm going to get eaten. So I just, you know, I'm, I'm just going to say, that's the same sound. And for lots of things. And for, you know, people who are living in oppression also, who are living in a system that is constantly, you know, telling them, Filling them with those concepts. Yes, you yes you can learn that. Right. That's what we're learning. But people don't seem to generally learn that very well, unless you really teach it to them. Not even, unfortunately. So in our research on mindfulness, we call that de-reification. 
It's not all the way to self-liberation of thoughts. It's just like your thoughts are just thoughts. They're not reality. And not even all mindfulness teachers teach that. Interestingly enough. The cognitive-based ones do that more. Yeah. That's right. Okay? Could you say what the two kinds of distortion are? Okay, there's these two. Oneness, making these different things into one, and thinking that the mental content is out in the world. Yes? Yeah. So like when we were kids, um, you know, like my friend Tom and I would uh, repeat our name over and over again. So the meaning was like Roger, 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 Tommy, Tommy, Tommy. So since then, I've had the disturbing experience of driving at night on a highway and realizing this is it's all in here. And I've got you know passengers, loved ones in the car, and I'm presuming so much. Um, just these lights, they're all abstractions, and it can be. Um, yeah, so why is it disturbing? Because I'm putting too much faith in cognitive events that are happening in here. It's not out there. It's when, all a presumption. When, when have you not been doing that? Well, it's usually not dangerous. No, I'm just asking you, when have you not been putting too much faith in cognitive events happening inside of your cognitive system? When have I not been putting too much faith in that? Yeah. You have, you have all, yeah. You have always been doing that. Now you just happen to know that you're doing it. So it was just as dangerous before. You just didn't know. Okay. But that sense of derealization makes you not be at ease with it. Yeah. But that, but in a way, that should actually put you at ease because actually, you know, you were walking on the tightrope the whole time. You just didn't know it. <laughs> you, you want to be like the guy in the Matrix who wants to go back in. It's like, don't tell me, you know. I just want to, like, eat the steak and yeah, forget it. Right? No, so, so, then, so then, but the fear is coming from, here's, where's, here's where the fear is. Where's the fear coming from? It's coming from not that you have been, you were previously not relying on a cognitive system, it's that now you know you were relying on it. And there's a safety in that? It's actually much better. Because, first of all, you have a lot of past experience which shows you that it works pretty well. But now also you can be learn about and be attentive to ways in which it might fail. But you don't want to be constantly living in... The, the fear is in a way misplaced... 
because it has worked all those times before. So there's like you should your cognitive system truly work, clearly has been working fine. So knowing that it's got it's actually got a delusional aspect shouldn't make you afraid. It's just like oh gee, it worked pretty well even though it's delusional. Oh, you mean like the wily e. coyote? Wiley. Yes, yeah, 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 uh, yeah. Except that you would actually fall. Yeah, like, fall. yeah. But you're not kind of. It's like, I'm, am I being clear? In other words, you never, you, you've always been doing that, and it's been working fine. So there's no reason to be afraid now that you know that that system is, you know. Has in the past, the difference is in the past, the system said, This is reality. Now you know, this is my cognitive system interpreting my environment. And it has certain kinds of built in flaws that are designed for it to work better, but I should be aware of what those flaws are. But it's worked, it's, it's always been working fine, so there's no, there's no reason to be afraid. The fear, I would suggest, may come from the sense like, oh, I don't really know what reality is anymore. Like, is this, where's the reality here? And that's like, yeah, welcome to the club. You know? So that's, but that shouldn't make you afraid. That should actually, like, make you clearer. Because, is that helping a little? Try that. Just try a little cognitive reappraisal, like see if. Billions of years of evolution have refined that. Yes. Yeah. You're. That's. Yeah. That's another way to think about it. Like you're the product of billions of years of evolution, and we're just going to the next step, which is now we're going to like know that we're deluded instead of just pretend we're not. But we can still do all kinds of things, even better. But it's still a delusion, or an illusion. It's so. Remember, here's this key thing. This works. Why does it work? Yep, because it's connected causally. So this thing only lasts a moment. This thing only lasts a moment. This thing, that's why these are different colors. So this causes this eventually. But your cognitive system is really good. Also, there's a continuity between this and this, right? So you're acting on this, actually. But because this has causal continuity and this has got causal continuity, this succeeds. I find that figure of the great comforting. Yeah, it is comforting because, I mean, it works. But then also what it always does is it, like, and this is the helpful part, like, it takes, it ignores things. It has to ignore things. Like, the tables, to call the tables the same, you have to ignore the ways they're different. So when you know that about your cognitive system, under certain situations, say, okay, am I just operating on autopilot here and I'm not actually paying attention to things that really shouldn't be just the same old, same old? Like this is a different situation. So it enables you to be more alert when you know, you know that you might be running more on autopilot. Okay? For example, or that you're in a new situation and you're trying to pretend it's just like an old situation, but instead of like learning from the situation.
Yeah, they've been conditioned yeah. differently. That's right. Yeah, uh, Bhante Analio has a deer who's his friend that I met the other day from afar, but you know, he said uh, we were walking and we've been uh, connecting a little bit and uh, he, uh, uh, I think it was, I can't remember whether it was after alms yesterday or the day before, I think it's the day before, you know, he said, we, this deer came out, so oh, there's a deer and we just were walking and talking about some Dharma stuff and then uh, we got a little closer and said, oh, we, let's not get too close because I don't like to scare her, you know, we're old friends and we have a relationship. So yeah, it's cool. Okay, uh, uh, let me. Uh, I really want to get to something else, so we're going to skip all this. Let's look at now. Let's look at. There's something really important we have to get to. So let's look at this. So first of all, why are we conceptualizing? Yeah, get the good stuff, avoid the bad stuff, right? So what's ignorance in this context so far? Yeah, so one part of ignorance is, so this, let's go back, uh, yeah, let's go back to this one actually for a second here. Okay, this, so here's different aspects of ignorance. This, one aspect of ignorance. This is, this, mo, this experience is the same as another experience I've had, which happens when I conceptualize. Oh, I just saw an X. False. I think of an X. Oh, that's an X. I think of an X, and I think the thought is a real thing. So maybe I'm not. I'm just sitting on my couch. Thought is a real thing. Ignorance. So those and those are just like all forms of ignorance. They're beginningless. Okay, meaning they're innate. Those tendencies are innate. Another form of ignorance. Right. Uh, when I, when I think, then I see that, I think that's a table, and I say, that's a table. I recognize, I have a moment of recognition. This is a table, or this is blue. I think that the, co- the conceptual cognition is a perception. It is not a perception. It's an interpretation of a perception. Okay? And it happens so fast... And because and why and so we we basically live here. Why survival again? Because to do things we have to conceptualize. As ordinary beings, to do things we have to conceptualize. Since we're always yeah, but not only just filter out like I want to get this, I don't want to get that, I don't want to get this. So we're making our way in the world like where's the good, where's the bad, where's the good, where's the bad. And so we're constantly doing that. So we're living in that conceptual world. And we're thinking of perceptual cognition. Thinking that this conceptualization of the experience is the experience. It's not the experience. You never see a table. Never. You nev- this is called a perceptual judgment in Western philosophy. Perceptual judgments are not perceptions. Some people, some perceptual judgments, meaning some people will say that this is perception. They'll use the word perception for this. This is not perception on this account. This is perception. This is not perception. That's the interpretation of the sensory input. But the sensory input, 
we, we, large, we basically ignore the sensory input because we don't care about it. Yeah, you could. It doesn't quite line up that way. But yeah, kind of. Yeah. It doesn't really, you can't really make this work with the 12 links. It's a different, these are philosophical tools that were not available when the 12 links emerged. Right? And especially one of the most to important tools here is just this idea of that you're not seeing the world, you're seeing a, a, a representation. That's a, that's a very important new tool that emerges around the 2nd to 3rd century in the Buddhist philosophy, and probably first in Buddhist philosophy in India anyway. And you don't really, there's no, pre, I don't believe there's any precedent for that. And that's an incredibly important philosophical tool that also is a contemplative tool. It may arise, probably does arise out of contemplative practice. In meditation, people are starting to realize this system. Okay, it's a model. Like all models, models aren't reality. But it's a model that, that comes from and enables certain types of practices. Okay, here we go, blah, 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 blah. And this is the practice I want to talk about. So let's take one moment of this. All right? So let's just take this moment, like this perceptual moment. Okay? Question for you. And then we'll just have a close look at this, at this moment. Uh, what's... This and this exist simultaneously. Neither of them existed before. Okay? This is not the agent of knowing, therefore, because an agent has to do something to an object, and it's not doing anything. It's just a structural feature. Everyone understand that? Okay? When you're seeing the blue, at the same time, the sense of subjectivity is also being presented. So blue is being seen and a sense of subjectivity is being presented, correct? How is the subjectivity being presented? What's that? No, that's conceptualization. How is it presented to you? Not to you, that's wrong. No. So it's, they're both in awareness. So what has to happen is that awareness... So one question you might have is, oh, I, like, I have another awareness that's seeing that awareness and knows that there's the subject. What's the problem with that? Infinite regression, right? So this is some Thomas Metzinger kind of friend, sort of uh, very interesting German philosopher who's really gotten into some of this stuff lately. Highly recommend some of his work. This is a diagram he made that is good old-fashioned intentionality, or gofi. So that means like subject-object. There's a world out here, and there's a subject in here. That's our intuition. And this system is saying, nope, it's more like this. The phenomenal model of the intentionality relation, like a sense of subject and object, that's within our mind. Okay? And I'm not sure about Metzger, to be honest, but on the Buddhist account, this is constantly happening in ordinary, it's like pretty much every moment of ordinary condition is like this, right? Objects are such a, such a, blah, 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 blah. If we had to have another subject to know that, then this would be the object of that subject. Then we need another subject to know that, and another subject to know that, and we're in an infinite regress. If that were true. 
So this is called a second-order account of cognition, and some people say, well, the second-order cognition doesn't need a subject. You know, so you'll see accounts, but they seem a little desperate at kind of resisting something we're going to talk about now, which is called reflexivity. Okay, so how is this thing going to be presented? It's going to be presented all at once. The moment of visual cognition is presenting all of that all at once. It's, they arise mutually, and all of it's presenting all at once. So one metaphor is prakasha, which means light. So what are, if we're going to ask, what is a, an essential feature of consciousness? It's prakasha. It's, a, it's like whatever's in the room is illuminated. When you've got subjects, in, but it's not like a light bulb that's a center. There's no center. Right? This, if it were like this, that means we need a standpoint to know this. There is no standpoint. It's just presented. Because, because I'm, I, you see, right now your sense of visual perception is this is over here, right? How do you know that? It, how does it? Why does it feel that way? Because you have a feeling of being in here. If you hear a sound, a somewhat less precise location, but you have a sense like over there. How can you have that? Do you have to go? Oh, I heard that sound. Now let me check where I am. The idea here is you don't have to check where you are, because where you are in space time. Where the cognitive, you know, where the where the sense of being in location is, is being presented simultaneously with the object. Yeah. So the relative built into it. Yes. So I'm picturing in my head, I don't know, I'm getting an image of like like film, twenty-four frames per second. Yeah. Right? So when the frame is there, it all exists. Yes. In that spot in between neither if there if there is an in-between, it wouldn't be there. There's a very big question about whether there is an in-between. And probably, and that's, you can work on that. Let us know. Um, yeah. <laughs> okay. So that's what this bracket represents. This is, this is representing prakasha, just consciousness. So one way of thinking about... One way of thinking about what is essential to consciousness, the nature of the mind, is prakasha, just illumination. Yeah, uh, it's going to come up on a slide soon. It means illumination or luminosity. Right? It's a really, it's a for our purposes right now, it's a metaphor. Okay, so just whatever's there. And if nothing's there, you still have luminosity. So if you're in an unusual state where you don't have content, which means you also don't have subjectivity, you, there is not, like, if you know about Advanta Vedanta, there is, they have this idea, there's a witness. There is no witness here. Nobody's witnessing this. There is no knower, there's just knowing. Okay? So if, if, this, if somehow there's no content, which means there's no structure, then it's just knowing. You have to wait. I'm sorry. I need to f finish this. Okay? 
You get that? All right, kind of. Yeah, we'll come back. So there, like if, if it's just that, if you somehow induce a state like that, or in some accounts when you fall asleep, you go pass through a state like that. When you wake up, you pass through a state like that. Right? In other contexts as well. Then, you know, and you can do practices that are induced a state like that. Then all that's there is just the knowingness and no content. No, we're working on a practice where there's content. No, not no, because you may still have visual content. But what we're working on in practice is that we're trying to be aware, even if when there is content, we're working on a practice in which and we're like, one way to think about it is we're trying to pay more attention about how this is being presented to us. And, it, and I just said it the wrong way. It's not presented to us. It's just presented, period. It's not presented to anybody. It's just presenting or being presented, right? Illuminated. So our, our normal state is we're the face, like we normally... We think we're this. We think we're the face seeing the blue dot, and we're trying to take this step back to see... We're seeing the whole thing at the same time, like out of the corner of your eye, seeing the subjectivity, but not from a standpoint. Okay. So the, the name of this is called reflexive awareness. In Sanskrit, it's called Swasamvitti. I'm going to just skip these. We'll come back to these. I just want to... Okay. Ah, well. So, ah, well. It's re- I'll, I'll give you the Sanskrit later. Um, it's, it's called reflexive awareness. Now, why is it called reflexive? Reflexive is coming from, actually, grammar. So this. The term in Sanskrit is swasamvitti. I'll write it down later. And it's got a prefix swa, which means self. So people sometimes say this is self-awareness. Bad translation. Because, and then people also say it's awareness of awareness. Also not a good translation. Why is that not a good translation? Yeah, it implies a standpoint from which awareness is being seen. There is no standpoint from which awareness is being seen. Awareness is just presenting all the time. So the smiling face is not you. The smiley face is not you. You think it's you and it's not you. Because it's actually not doing anything. It's just a... No, 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 because it's, con- it's, only, it's only there like this long. And it's not you, but you, you or the organism, the mind-body system, does things. That can't, literally can't do anything. It's just a structure. Yeah, it's like a sense of subjectivity, better say. So this is a subtler form of self. Like, remember we talked about self as object? Remember we had that little discussion, like when you think about yourself, like me? This is a subtler form. This is just the sheer sense of subjectivity in, in the moment of an experience. And that's also not me. That's not I. It's not even conventionally I. Because I see. That doesn't see. Right? 
Yeah, it's, it's a basis. We need that to build the eye. It's critical for our building of the eye. But it's not that eye, actually. The, the sort of grosser level eye who sees is not that. Because that doesn't actually see. It's, it's just a structure. But it's a very strong sense. That sense of, I'm, there's a seer. Someone's seeing. Someone's hearing. And it's me. No, it's me. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. So, okay, let's wait. Okay, so I just want to explain why it's called reflexive. Right? So in some uh, languages, some Romance languages, they also have a, this kind of pronoun, but it's called a reflexive pronoun. So some of you speak Spanish. I used to speak pretty, I used to be fluent, but he olvidado todo. So in Spanish, for example, you can say, yo hablo español, or aquí en esta tienda nosotros hablamos español, like we speak Spanish in this, in this store. Or you can have a sign that says, Aquí se habla español. Okay? Or in French, you can say, Je vois ça. I see that. Or, ça se voit. Se voit. There's a pronoun there. Same pronoun in the different pronunciation, but actually same pronoun in the two languages. So, S-E, right? So what that pronoun is doing is it's taking a transitive verb Nosotros hablamos español, subject, we, speak, verb, uh, español, object, we speak Spanish, and it's taking a transitive verb and turning, making it intransitive. Español se habla. So in English, you have to say it is spoken here. As Spanish is spoken here, but that would be español es hablado aquí. That's a different construction. That's a passive construction. We can't say this in English. It's, it's like saying Spanish speaks itself. Can you say one? No, that won't work either because that's, that's transitive. Yeah, that's also transitive. That's, that's a transitive verb. Own is just another... You can't... Well, that no, that's also actually... That's not even... A, Technically, not an a, it's not an action. <laughs> okay, in 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 French, we're almost almost done. In French, ça se voit, right? It is a way of saying it's obvious. No, that instead of saying I see that, it's like that sees itself. You can't say if you say that is seen. That's a passive construction. That would be ça c'est vu. It's seen. So you can't actually do this in English. But the, so the key thing here, and then we'll take questions, is that this form of knowing, knowing is usually transitive. The subject knows the object. This is intransitive. The mind intransitively, consciousness intransitively knows itself. You can't do it. In, it's really hard. You just, like, that's the, probably the closest we can come. So it's not, it's... It's not, what's that? Is this why we're assholes? <laughs> yeah, maybe, what do you mean? <laughs> English. Yes, oh well, maybe, who knows? English has its issues. Awareness intransitively knows itself. Meaning it doesn't, it's not awareness of awareness. It's not awareness knows awareness. It's, you know, la conscience se connaît. Yes? 
Yes. And uh, language work is a way of interpreting, it's a conceptual way of interpreting the world, rather than reality. That's right. Yes. However, the claim here would be that the problem is not language. The problem is not language. Even a language that only has verbs still does this, still objectifies. That would be the claim. Animals do it. They don't have language. So this is something deeper than language. It's, you can think of it as conceptualization of a kind. But if you ask yourself, remember we had that quote from Nagarjuna. Nagarjuna said, if you get rid of karma and klesha, you're free. Karma and klesha come from conceptualization, which is not language, required for language. Conceptualizations come from prapancha, that term, but fabrication. What's, what's prapancha? One option. What do you need to conceptualize. What would you, why would you conceptualize? Well, you need your mind. But if we get rid of the mind, then we're kind of not going to become Buddhas either. So why do, why, why do we conceptualize? For survival, meaning we're an we're a organism acting in the world. Self-world. What's, what's, what's that structure? Subject-object. So conceptualization requires duality on this account. So being able to see that the duality is actually a feature of the mind and not a feature of the word, of reality is key. Okay? So, that, so, ref, so the idea is that reflexive awareness, which is also known as prakasha, illumination or luminosity, is constantly presenting all of our contents, including our sense of subjectivity. Can you just, so and now we're going to stop before everyone's head explodes. Yeah. Reflexivity, reflexive awareness, awareness that just knows, okay, yes. can see if pointed in 
it it has it usually has this in it. So when we're seeing this, what's actually going on is the lights on. Yes. Basically, if you got into some kind of a state in which you didn't have objects presented, either thought objects or perceptual objects, you would also that would mean you'd also have no subject because you can't have the sense of subjectivity without an object. Okay, they're structural; it's a requirement. So, if you somehow got into this state and you were still conscious. Then you would be just. Then it would just be pure reflexivity. Yeah, and without a subject, therefore. Well, some open awareness is depends on how you use the term. There would be a version of open awareness that is just like, oh, there's the world, but you can also be in a state like this, and have open awareness, where in the sense that you're not kind of, you know, and this is like the sort of. In some ways, for the cultivation of non-dual awareness, this is easier. But inducing that state is difficult. It can happen when you pass into sleep. If you can, but it's very, very difficult to sustain awareness. through the, So that requires certain kinds of dream practices to do that. It's very difficult to do that. You can do certain... You can do, yeah, to sustain conscious awareness through that process is very difficult. No, I would, awareness of awareness actually probably makes it worse. Because it's just making you more dualistic. Looking at your own awareness, you're just like, you know, it's just, that's, so I, I'll explain after lunch, but that's just more dualism. So that doesn't really help. And, and because it makes you think you're actually doing this, it's worse. The goal, well, the goal, this is a way, this is a method to get to a place where even though you have the dualistic structure, you're not stuck in it. So the goal is not the No. Some traditions will kind of, this is their goal for some traditions, but for this tradition, it's not. It's, for this tradition, it's more like you're not, you're not bound by these appearances you're bound by clinging to them as real and as you. Right? So, like, and therefore, I can't, be in, I can't really inhabit somebody else's standpoint. I can't be maximally flexible in my, in my way of understanding the world. I can't, like, change the, my model of the world because I just think that's reality. No, we're bound by this. By this. By this, what's actually going on here is this. We think, that's me, and I'm seeing a real thing in the world, and moreover, then plus the quotations, I think my categorization of it is real too. But I even I think this is real. It's also a different level of fabrication. And we're going to come... So there's, there's going to be another layer when we need to do after lunch yoga chara. There's going to be another twist to this. It's going to be even more like head expanding. No. 
Kind of, yes. And yeah, kind of. And we're gonna yes, yes? Yes, that can definitely happen. It's not necessary, but it can definitely happen. It may be useful, especially for some people. But according to this tradition, it's not necessary. We'll talk about more after lunch. It's 20 of... And just practice here, you mean? Yeah, that's true. We could do that. Okay, let's take a five-minute break and come back a quarter of, and we'll just do a little bit of practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.